mercies. So let us learn from their encounter with Christ. It says here in Matthew 20, if you remember, Jesus had just spoken to James and John that they wanted to be very high up in the kingdom, to sit at his right hand and his left. And so now Jesus is encountering two new people who are wanting much less than that, just the ability to see. They haven't really set up their retirement plan in heaven yet. They would just like to not bump into walls when they walk. And the conversation is very different. It says this, Jesus is moving south, down to the big city of Jerusalem. The whole Gospel of Matthew, there's nothing more left than that plan to move to Jerusalem. As they went out of Jericho, a city nearby Jerusalem in the north, a great uh, crowd followed him. And behold, there were two blind men sitting by the roadside. And when they heard that Jesus was passing by, they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd rebuked them, telling them to be silent. But they cried out all the more, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And stopping, Jesus called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened. And Jesus in pity touched their eyes, and immediately they recovered their sight. And they followed him. That it was nothing more than Jesus taking that moment to pull aside from his campaign, his progression down to Jerusalem with crowds uh, in the train of his robe, so to speak, following him or walking with him. That he pulled aside to the margins of the road for the margins of society in order to simply ask, what? is it you would like. Now, this story is here for you to know that about your Lord. That is good to know. That He's the kind of Lord who stops and pulls along the side to ask such a question. See, the way these men are introduced to us is that we're told to behold this. Behold is not a word we use very often. It's a bizarre word. We don't usually say, behold, I'm awake, or behold, I stand here in front of you. It's, it's, it's used... Um, Sarcastically, it's, it's when you want to make a big deal about something that's not a big deal. If you want to make a joke. Right? We don't say the word, behold, look at me. It's all it means is to look, pay attention. Draw your attention in this direction. Behold over here. Behold over there. Well, now we are transitioned into the story to where Matthew is saying to his readers, to his listeners, behold, look at this. Look at these men. They cried out to the Lord, that he would have mercy upon 
the son of David. They are economically marginalized. They are blind. They are poor. See, this is during the pilgrimage to Passover. The reason the crowds are there, the reason Jesus is even traveling south, is because it's Passover. It's the one of the three main feasts, festivals, in which all the people of Israel were, men particularly, required to be down to the main city for the whole ceremony. So thousands and thousands, throngs of people were coming down. There was a large crowd. And for that reason, it was all customary for those who were the beggars, those who had nothing, those particularly here who are blind, have no way of living a normal life, that's where you stay, on the sides of this road. As thousands of people are obligated to think a little bit more spiritually, a little bit more religiously, as they're going down in Jerusalem for a religious ceremony, that maybe they'll give you a few dollars. Maybe they'll drop a few coins by your side as you stand on that or sit on that side of the road begging for mercy. And today, one of the passerby happened to be Jesus. Oh, that's a lucky day to be a beggar. We are commanded to look at these blind men. Behold them, it says. At the very least, we are to behold them. To behold ourselves, obviously. Why? Because we're told to look at this. There's something in this for us. It's not just about Jesus healing blind men. Most clearly, of course, we're supposed to see what they saw. To behold Christ himself in the story. Can you actually see them? Imagining these blind men, impoverished, grazing along the walls of the city, stumbling through and feeling for gutters and corners, stumbling along all the way of their life. They have nothing. They always need to be helped. They always need to be instructed. They need to be guided by the hand. They need to be given their food. Or they die. They are the bottom of the barrel. See, all throughout this sermon series, all throughout this portion of the gospel, it has been the children, the children. And you see, a woman comes and asks for a great position for her two children, her two sons, James and John. But in reality, you find these two men are no more different than the children, the lowest in society, having nothing and needing everything. If you can see them, you see why Matthew is saying, behold them. Don't just read it. Pause on it. Behold it. Appear. Let this appear. Let this apprehension come upon you. Who are these men? Because the point is that you should be seeing yourself. You shouldn't just be seeing them. That you should be beholding yourself. That there is a real spiritual condition being had here. Ephesians 4.18 says, We are all darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in us due to our hardness of heart. And of course it would be, yes, this is a sermon. 
it's Sunday, and now it's time to spiritualize the Bible verses so that we can all make spiritual metaphors about blindness. That's what you do now. This is the, this is the show. No. This is the gospel. The previous chapter, Jesus said, in the new world, I will sit on my glorious throne. It is everything. We are not spiritualizing this blindness just to say, oh, these men were physically blind and therefore you're spiritually blind and therefore believe in Jesus. We're saying Jesus is the king and every portion of this world is his. He will not undo this world. He will get everything out of this world that he initially intended. And every blind eye, every broken bone, every cancer, every plate of grass, every natural disaster, every tear that has ever been shed, he will take that and make it glorious. And so therefore, behold these men. Their eyes are seeing because Jesus will save the world. But it always begins spiritually. Point to be had. That in Matthew 19 is where Jesus said, In the Palagenesia, the new world, the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. The rebirth of the whole world. That word is only used one other time in all of Scripture. Spiritually. In Titus 3.5 where it says, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. The palagenesia that comes from the Holy Spirit. The renewal of regeneration. That is, the inward spiritual regeneration that is brought to us, that vivifies us, that causes us in our mind's eye to behold the glories of Jesus Christ. Though we do not see him, we love him, and we rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and full of glory. That reality, the, the spiritual manipulation of God upon our souls that changes us, is the same power that actually changes the whole cosmos and every physical reality that we see as well. So yes, these men are blind. And yes, so are we. The same problem, the same solution. Behold your Lord. Can you see Jesus Christ this way? These blind men are invisible to society. You see how the crowd treats them. They're already on the margins of the road, margins of society. They already are the little ones that Jesus so loves that everyone can't get anything out of and are essentially useless for the present world. The present world has no place for blind people that can't make money or do anything for you. But in the new world, only these kind of people will even get in. They're like little children, and the crowd comes by and quietly tells them to shush. A little rebuke, just like a child. Now be quiet. Someone important is walking by. We're going down to Jerusalem to be godly, don't you know? Now be quiet. Blind men. Don't you know Jesus is important? 
Crowds like him. He can do various things. He doesn't have time for you, blind men. But only they can see. Only they are calling Jesus this phrase, Son of David. Their inability to perceive Jesus, physically of course, is not hindered them at all spiritually. We are here, though Jesus is not. Though don't you know him? Don't you love him? When you hear him preach to you, does your heart not turn? Yes. It's because this is how the Lord is saving the world. Inwardly to outwardly. A spiritual regeneration that works out to a natural regeneration. That the whole world will be renewed this way. God will not destroy the whole world. He will burn the whole world up, Peter says, with fire. But not the actual elements in the sense that the whole substance is gone. Jesus did not give them brand new eyes. He took their broken eyes and restored them. He doesn't take paralytic people and give them a new spine. He takes what is broken and fixes it. Jesus has a world right now, this world you live in, will be glorious someday. It will be sinless someday. It will be everything you intended in your heart that you know should be that is not to be. That is what it is to be. The Lord will take what is broken and make it new. Grace restores nature. This gospel is taking all the things that are spiritual and physical, heavenly and earthly, the soul and the body, the unseen and the seen. So these men are able to see spiritually. They're able to behold Jesus Christ in the same way you and I do. As blind as Jesus is to us and we to him, at least for the moment. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church was nothing different than this. To know him and to have the eyes of the heart enlightened. Ephesians 3, 19, he says, That you may know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, and be filled with all the fullness of God. That is, there is a knowledge of God that is experiential. A knowledge of his love, which is more than just knowledge. I was speaking with a friend this week, speaking about the trials of sin and dealing with the difficulties of trying to put away what the scriptures speak of as the old man. This old sinful nature. The way you used to do things. The way you used to live. And the sin habits or patterns of speech and thought and action that are contrary to Christ. That it is very challenging to put that away. But as we were speaking, we got down to a point in the conversation in which he essentially said, I need to experience God. I can't just know that Jesus loves me. I can't just know that he died on the cross for me and that all my sins are gone. I need him to press that upon me. I need him to show me that he loves me. That if he could show me he loves me, I wouldn't want to do anything. I just would want him more and more. And the reality of the scriptures are, yes, 
There is a knowledge of the love of God which surpasses all knowledge. There is the power, the expulsive power of greater affections. That is, there is a greater love for God than there is a less love for this world and the things of this world. There is a greater love for Jesus Christ and the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the, the I don't know how to describe, but at least in my own experiences, the manipulation of my mind by the Spirit in which everything I see seems to glitter. Everything I see in my life seems to be beautiful. Even though it's not, it's as though the Spirit of God is whispering to my soul to say, this world is mine. This situation is mine. I remember the first experience ever when I was first converted to Christ in my last year of high school. I remember walking to the gym in the basement of um, the high school going to uh, basketball practice at the end of the school day. And I remember, I remember this vividly. I, I stopped and stood in the hall for a long time. I remember walking almost to the double doors of the locker room and looking to my right out a window and I saw a tree. And it was the most beautiful tree I've ever seen. Because when I saw that tree, it is as though the Lord said that he made that tree. And I realized that he was in me, talking to me all the time. But not so much in words or revelation. But that the whole world was different now. That he loved me. And he would be with me. And that I could never even look at one item in his creation and not see him and hear him and feel him. See, the Psalm 42 speaks of this need, this need that we desperately have. As a deer pants for water, pants my soul for you, O God. For my God, my soul is thirsty, thirsting for the living God. When shall I, O God of grace, come and stand before your face? I don't want to read a book about water. I need to drink water. I don't want to know about the chemicals of H2O. I am thirsty, you see. It's very different. And the word of God is, he will fill you. Out of you, Jesus promises in John, dreams of living water will always be renewing those who are his. So these men are like that. They're desperate. They're blind. They have nothing. But they have gained an experience of some vision of this man named Jesus because they are petitioning him from a position of mercy, so prone to in their situation, they are more likely to just pray out in mercy. Now these prayers we have, do you know what they're like when you pray for something a little bit because you just need a little help while you're driving the car? And a thought comes to you. But by God's grace, he's positioned our life in so many ways is that we are left to forks in the road many times over. We are left as Israel was to the Red Sea with Egypt in the back. There's no way forward. There's no way behind. These are the moments in which you actually realize I'm not in control. There are problems in my life I can't solve. There's a particular blindness about me that I have no light for. That's where these men are praying. A different type of prayer in which they're saying, 
Son of David, have mercy on me. I have nothing. Have mercy. Where are you? I hear a crowd. Son of David, have mercy on me. There's a particular power to that prayer. There's a boldness to being broken. When nothing else is left. To need mercy. Pure, unbridled mercy. Why would they say this though? Why are they calling him the son of David? In the life of Christ, he had a tremendous ministry up north in Galilee. And there were large crowds that followed him. And then he said a few things, rebuked them in certain ways, and the numbers dwindled significantly. He's traveling south. Many people now in this location have never even seen him. Most would probably not even know of him. There was no more crowd at the time. But you see, this is the grand finale. Jesus has to go to the cross. It is the Passover. There are thousands of people, and it's time to make another crowd. But these men know Jesus particularly as the son of David. The reason being is this. It's the story of the two kings of Israel. The two first kings that governed that nation. Saul and David. You see, understanding the phrase, the mercies of David, cannot be appropriated unless you see these two kings for the way they are. The first king of Israel, Saul, he was tall, he was handsome, he was a great leader, a natural-born leader. People gravitated toward him. He had a way of rallying them together and actually was very successful for it. He brought together so much of the nation and rallied them and solidified them so much in an army that they won many wars. They beat the Philistines, the Palestines of their time. But there was a moment in which his kingdom was taken away. And this is the whole problem. This baffled me for a long time until I read Corinthians, uh, Chronicles 17. I hope to see this and show it to you. That there is this reality in which it doesn't make sense that Saul would have his kingdom taken away. He had a few mistakes. All ceremonial. Ceremonial meaning the portions of the law that had to do with symbols and types and sacrifices and cleansing and the temple. Those were his sins. It happened at his time as they were rallied around a bunch of soldiers. Thousands of chariots and men from Philistia were there to attack. And it's the custom in war procedure at the time that you would offer a sacrifice before you went to war. And Samuel, who was a priest or a prophet at the time, was there to give the sacrifice. But he told Saul, wait, do not give it without me. Seven days lingered on. Saul did not see Samuel anywhere. Men are being demoralized and beginning to walk away from the war, the battle lines. And in order to do what leaders do, do what he's good at, he rallies the troops, brings them back together, and Saul offered a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice to God before you go to war. Immediately after that, Samuel, this priest, showed up and said, this is not good. What you did was absolutely foolish. The kingdom will be taken from you. The kingdom will be taken from you. 
You are no longer right to be king of this people. Shortly after that, there was another war he had with an Amalekite. And he went to go to war and Samuel said, when you win, because you will, do not leave anything in the battlefield. What Saul actually did is he kept some of the prisoners for war and some of the animals he didn't kill. He kept them for sacrifice so that he could sacrifice them at the tabernacle later. Okay. That was it. Kingdom's gone. Samuel said, God will tear this kingdom from you because to obey is better than sacrifice. And it's a sad story. And the rest of his life was riddled with jealousy and despair. Now, this man named David, the second king that takes his place, he rises up in power. He rises in popularity. Everyone likes him. He's a very successful commander. He's installed as king. And his fame only increases. And his battle exploits only become more predominant. He actually is taking over much land. And then there's the fateful story, the famous story. If anyone knows any story of David, it's the story of Bathsheba. This woman that he saw bathing on top of a roof. He saw her. He solicited her. Sent for her. She came to him. He lay with her. A married woman, he a married man. We're told, and this is, this is telling in the story, we're told that she was bathing for ritual purity. She was purifying herself from her uncleanness. That's why she was in the tub. It wasn't just because she was dirty with dirt or soil. Ritual purity in Israel was that you had to be clean in order to enter back into public worship. Ceremonially clean. She was ceremonially cleaning herself. But then entered into a deep, grave, moral sin. Not just a ceremonial sin. Adultery itself. And then, to make it worse, David frames her husband as she, days later, responds by saying a message to David that she's pregnant and she conceived. David frames her husband, Uriah. He was at the war front line, calls him to come back to his wife, to be with his wife. Therefore, the child makes sense. Everything's good. But in the law of Israel, a man could not leave war to come and be with his wife physically. It was considered ceremonially inappropriate. He had to be clean, ceremonially clean, to go to war to fight, to have his mind fixed just on the war and not partially at home. And so Uriah, because of ceremony, said, no, I couldn't do that. That would be wrong for me against the men I fight with, for me to be the only one at home with my wife. And so it never happened, ceremonially. Ceremonial law. And so David framed him again for death. He sent him back to the front lines. He had his commander, Joab, pull back the forces at the time when the fighting was hardest, and he fell in battle premeditatively by murder. Now, this is a stage set 
so that you might understand your Lord. We have one King Saul who sacrificed to God a little bit at the wrong time. We have the other King David committed adultery, potentially rape, and murder. And his kingdom remains. That David is the one blessed. That Saul was set aside immediately after falling away, just with a small mistake, a small sidestep. But the promise, the promise in 1 Chronicles 17 is, to David, God has promised mercy that I will be a father, David, to your son, he says. And I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from him who was before you. He deliberately says in that moment, the reason you're different than Saul, even though he sinned so mildly compared to all of your misconducts, is because I love you. And I'll never take it away. And that's the only difference. That's the only difference. Let the phrase steadfast love fasten to your soul like rivets. Mercy. So when they say, Oh, son of David, have mercy on me. They're saying more than you know. I need the mercy of David upon my life. I have not sidestepped. I have not just had a mistake. I need his mercy. I am blind and broken. The slightest sidestep Saul is cut off. So why this mercy? Not because of David, you see. In the passage, 1 Chronicles 17, it explicitly says, because of your son, because of your son, I will not take anything away from you, but my steadfast love will remain. The reason David's adultery and murder is covered, the reason these blind men are granted sight, and the reason your sins are forgotten is because there is a man named Jesus Christ who is the son of David and all the debts and all the transgressions and all the weight of these sins have been pushed down to him. David's sins were not simply pushed aside. They were satisfied. The reason he could be let go and the reason mercy could be extended to him because it was pushed down to his son and his son's son and the son of his son all the way down to the son of God. Therefore, that love cannot be broken because it has been satisfied. Do you see why Jesus responded to their prayer? How could he not? This is what he came to do. Mercy. I had an opportunity to speak with... Um, a congressman from Kentucky, or at least to see him, Thomas Massey. And he has this thing he's doing in his particular um, work in his region and what he does on the Congress House. He has a pin on his shirt. And it's a digital pin that's actually 
connected through the internet uh, to the Treasury's website of our country. Uh, it's a, a pin of numbers that are buzzing by very quickly. It's our national debt. And so I think it's kind of comical, and he does it good for his uh, position as a congressman, that everywhere he goes on Capitol Hill when he's speaking with his colleagues or even presenting on the floor, he has this digital pin that has numbers that are just twirling. Three, 30, I think 33 trillion and counting. And so when the, when the TV picks him up or when you have to record him, it's this very distracting little thing of just colorful little digits just spinning by. And the reason he does that, he says, is because he just wants everyone to know that if they're going to talk to them, him, they're going to be distracted by seeing this thing just glittering by on his chest. See, it's the national debt that no one wants to talk about. Generations after generations, the baby boomer to Gen X to millennials, Gen Z, everybody just wants to kick the can down because it is political suicide to say no, that maybe we should cut the spending and I can't offer anybody any political favors. The debt is needed. The promises to make the policies need monies. But here he is with his little debt calculator saying, by the way, who is going to drink the poison, the political poison that is, of saying we should not spend? Who's going to swallow the medicine? You see, sin is like that. The debt, it adds up, it's a clock, it calculates. It's an invisible pin placed on every one of our shoulders. The numbers hum right by. As Matthew 12 says, men will give an account for everything on the day of judgment, every careless word that they have spoken, every thoughtless deed, every sin that could ever be numbered. That number just climbs and climbs and whizzes right by calculating the numbers beyond measure sliding across generation, just like the debt can move from one generation to the next and one generation to the next. One generation is more sinful than the other, but sure enough, the next generation builds upon that sin and the next generation builds upon that sin until you eventually have some type of war and the cycles of history. Lots of people die, we try to start over, or a reformation. But that is the way it usually works through the biblical narrative of history. All the kings of Israel became more and more wicked. Their terms became shorter and shorter. They had civil war. They killed each other. Infighting, suicide, if not manslaughter, and then all-out war. And then another nation takes you over. This is the philosophy of history from the Bible's perspective. Well, the reality of it all is somebody got in the stream of human history. There was another king named Jesus. That all the sins from generations yet unborn and the weight of all that corruption was pinned to a man on a tree. That there is a prayer that saves. That there is a petition that says, O son of David, of the lineage of the kingdom of Israel. Have mercy on me. Do not let my sins fall on me. Let not the weight of the moral corruptions of this generation fall on me. Remember me. Look to me. Come to me. That prayer. That prayer is tied to a man who has actually swallowed the poison. 
a man who has actually taken the wrath. Steadfast love. There's a baluster around my deck that shifts. I was working on it yesterday because I don't want anyone to fall if they were on my deck. There's a lag bolt that goes through. And it won't bite into the wood. So when I twist the lag bolt, it spins constantly. And so the post moves and it's not tight. It's not steadfast. It's not holding. So the weight of someone leaning against that post, sure enough to fall and at least hurt themselves. The steadfast love of God. Do you see all the weight of all of our sins calculated over, pinned to that tree, fastened to that tree, nailed to that tree. There is a post pounded into the post of the cross that you must consider these nails. The promises are, I will not pull back my love from this man. He will not fall off that cross. You push all your sins down upon him. Those nails will hold. Because the promise of the prophetic word of God is, it is steadfast. Outside of this, there is no hope. There is no mercy. But here, we have the love of God. Nails that cannot fail, even under the weight of the world, and even our many sins. So can you see this man? Can you see this blind man? Can you see Jesus Christ? I don't know the answer to God's answer for all your prayers. Surely these blind men were not the only ones to suffer in Palestine that time. But the Lord had pity on them, you see. He touched them. They recovered their sight. Behold this Jesus. Not the Jesus you think of. Not the Jesus you interpret by your unanswered prayers. Scriptures are calling you to behold this Jesus. The one who stops on the side of the road. Let the beholding of him build your faith. That he is the one who will answer you. I don't know what the answer is. But the reality is this, my children struggle, the prayer goes, Lord. My spouse suffers, O oh Lord. My life is hard, O oh Lord. I don't know the answer, but the solution is here. The first command is to behold him. This is your Jesus. He responds to petitions for mercy. Have mercy on me, O Lord. I don't know what form that will take. But have mercy on me. I grieve the loss of my loved one. Lord, have mercy on me. My children are wayward and gone. Lord, have mercy on me. My life, my job. He responds to this. Behold this Jesus. Dear Father God, let our petitions be positioned on your mercy. There is an emptiness that we have, Lord. 
in which we have no way to solve our life's problems. Whether it be blindness, moral brokenness, anything in our life that is untoward, we understand, Father, that you are saving the world. We understand, Father, that you have placed your love, your steadfast love on this son. We understand that you will connect the two. And Lord, therefore we stand for your mercy. Be merciful to us. Answer when we call. Give us what we need. Bring your kingdom to this earth. New heavens and new earth. Lord, please give us your mercy, O son of David. Amen.